text this morning is Acts chapter 13. And while you're turning there, I'm going to tell the guys in the sound booth you're on notice. In a minute, I'm going to ask you to put the lyrics to that second to last hymn we did back up there. So they can start scrambling for that. Uh, Acts chapter 13, you'll find this on page 921 of one of the Pew Bibles, if you happen to be using that. We're well into our series on the book of Acts, and each week as we've opened up the Bible and looked at the book of Acts, we've been asking this question, what does Acts tell us about the mission of God, this mission of God to us, this mission in which God comes to us in His grace and His mercy and His peace and brings us new life, and this, and this mission that is then through the world around us, that He uses us to bring this hope of the gospel to the world around us. That's what we've been looking at week in and week out. Um, it, it struck me as we were singing, though, guys, have you got that hymn, or is that too hard to do after we shut this whole thing down? The one before that, yeah. The hymn before that. You just shouldn't put people on the spot. It's not fair. Okay, go to the next slide. Okay, read the read this hymn. Okay, perish every fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known, yet how rich is my condition. God and heaven are still my own. Go to the next slide. Let the world despise and leave me. They have left my Savior too. Human hearts and looks deceive me. Thou art not like them untrue. And then one more slide. Oh, while thou dost smile upon me, God of wisdom, love, and might, foes may hate and friends disown me. Show thy face and all is bright. When you sing these hymns, like me, when we sit here and sing these hymns, do you ever think, I came to church to be comforted today and I felt like I just jumped into a very cold stream. And it's bracing. You realize what we just sang together? We just said that, for those of us who are following Jesus, that nothing has more power in our life. Nothing has more sway over us than the peace and reconciliation that come to us through Jesus. Nothing the world can throw at us. And do you find yourself like me thinking, do I really believe that this morning? Our text this morning brings us right to issues like this because it talks about the freedom that we have in Jesus. For those who are following Christ, the freedom that the gospel brings, what does it take for us to be people who are free, free like that, free to sing like that? Okay, well, let's look at Acts chapter 13. Before we do, let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning, some of us very encouraged, and some of us not. Some of us full of faith, some of us wondering if we have any faith at all. Would you meet us where we are right now? Speak to us through the goodness of the gospel that you might bring to life for us again or even for the first time the goodness of Jesus that sets us free. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to pick up at chapter, or Acts chapter 13 and verse 13. We're going to see that um, Paul has begun uh, with Barnabas, the, the first great missionary journey. They've gone out into the Gentile world and you're going to read some unfamiliar names here, but... If you're familiar with the New Testament, you know the book of Galatians. Well, Galatia was a a region in Rome, and the churches that are being mentioned here are in the region of Galatians. So, If you've read Galatians, you've read Paul's follow-up letter to these churches that he's going to speak to for the first time. We're going to see this morning what he has to say about freedom. And let me just say, you, you get two for the price of one today, because you're hearing a sermon, and we're about to read a sermon. So you get two sermons this morning. 
I know you're excited about that. Let's pick up verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for us, for the people, say it. And so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel... And you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for 40 years, about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet, Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. When he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, Jesus had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not, unwo- I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath. They fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he says also in another psalm, You will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. 
Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. And they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook the dust from their feet against them and went on to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Okay, a lot there in this first sermon that gets preached to the Gentiles by Paul and by Barnabas. But here's where just the one thing we're going to concentrate on this morning. That this passage talks to us about the freedom that Jesus brings into our lives. About this freedom. Okay, now the three things about the freedom, this freedom he brings. It is decisive, and it is unbreakable, and it is imperative. It's decisive, it's unbreakable, and it's imperative. First, this freedom, it's a decisive freedom. Look with me at verses 38 and 39. At the very crux of this sermon, what what does Paul say this all boils down to? What does he say is the most important point? What does he point us to? Look at verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Christianity always makes this one central claim that your biggest problem is that you are in the clutches of sin, that I am in the clutches of sin. Sin is, in fact, the biggest problem that runs right through our lives. And it's unapologetic about that. And when Paul stands up and says this to this audience, he's running right along the lines of what Jesus himself had said. Think about what Jesus says. This is in John chapter 8. When he's speaking to the crowds, here's, here's what he says in, in John 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, and you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Here's what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus looks at this crowd of people who are thinking about him and considering following him, and he says, you are enslaved to something because the very sin, the very drivenness in your heart that pulls you away from God has enslaved you. It is the thing that has power in your life. And so when Paul stands up and preaches to these people and he says, sin is the central issue for you, he goes on to say that Jesus brings a freedom that meets us at our deepest need, right in the middle of the very sin that has its grip around our lives. And he says something remarkable here in verses 38 and 39. He says, Jesus does something for you. Remember he's speaking to to good Israelites who follow the law. He said, Jesus does something for you that the law of Moses never could. Bring something in your life that the law of Moses, following that, never could. He says, the law of Moses can't take you far enough. Why is that? Well, for two reasons. One, if you're a good Old Testament believer, what did you do month after month, year after year? What was continually happening in the temple day after day even? Sacrifices were being made for sin over 
and over again. Sacrifices being made for the sins of the people. Why? Because we are people who are always falling in to sin that drives us away from God. We are people who are always stumbling and falling. And so the regular pattern of life for an Old Testament believer was again and again and again, this rhythm of worship in the temple that was centered around a sacrifice, blood being spilled instead of your own, a sacrifice being made for your sin. Now, that's not the background for most of us. So we look at this and we think, well, you know, I'm not caught in this system of perpetual sacrifices for my sin time and time again. We'd be arrested that were what was going on in our own homes. But what does go on in our own homes? Let me ask you this. Even those of you that are following Jesus, what has to happen for you to really trust and believe that Jesus forgives you for your sins? What has had to happen even this week for you to have one small taste of peace from that? Was it enough quiet times this week? If I just get up a little bit earlier... If I just pray a little bit longer, if I just read the right inspiring verse from the Bible, then finally God's going to forgive me, or at least finally I'll feel forgiven. Or if I just feel bad long enough, maybe that's going to cover over my sin. We don't offer literal sacrifices, but maybe we too are people that need to be reminded that Jesus came to offer us something different and better. Okay, so the first problem with the law of Moses was this need for repeated sacrifices. The second thing, second problem that Paul points to in, in the law of Moses throughout his writings is there's something the law can't do. It can tell you what is right, but it can't help you do it. It can tell you what God requires, but it can't give you the power to obey. If only our problem was so simple of simply needing more education. If only I knew what God wanted from me, and then I could finally do it. We just can't live that way. I found this out again. I find this out repeatedly with my children. Here's what the way it looks like this week for our two-year-old son, two-and-a-half-year-old son, Henry. Henry, I want you to go in your room and clean up all the cars. Now, I'll come in there ten minutes later, and they're all still strewn about. Was I not clear? Henry, these cars go in that basket, and it still doesn't happen. Because my son needs something more than simply to know what is the right thing to do. And as much as I want to think that's some poor defect in Henry, my wife reminds me often, how like God with us? How often do we know the thing to do, and it seems that we lack the power to do it? How often have I done that myself this week? Henry learned it from his dad. So two things the law can't do. It can't... It, it has to be, the sacrifices have to be repeated over and over again, and the law doesn't have the power to actually change your heart. And what Paul says is Jesus comes in and he does something decisively different for us. He brings a freedom that is earth-shaking for us because it provides something we've never had before. He says no longer are there continual sacrifices for sin. What does he do? He points to Jesus and he says, this was the one sacrifice for sin, and it never needs to be repeated. It brings into our lives a freedom of no longer having to sacrifice for our own sin because Jesus has done something decisive for us. If you remember the, the very last words that Jesus speaks from the cross as he is being crucified, they are words that no Old Testament believer ever heard in the temple, ever. 
Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Jesus said these new words on the cross. It is finished. It is finished. It is over. All that it takes to atone for sin, I have just done through the sacrifice of myself. Jesus speaks those words. Paul says something is decisively different. No more sacrifice. Now the second thing, the problem for Henry, the problem for me, is that um, the law does not give us the power to obey. But listen to what comes with Jesus as he gives us a new heart. This is what was prophesied in Ezekiel verse 36. As God speaks about this new covenant, this new thing he's going to do, Ultimately, when he brings his son, Jesus, what's he going to bring us? He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. No longer do we simply have this command to obey. What does Jesus say? That he comes in and works in us a new heart to obey. That something has to happen on the inside, and through His Spirit, He begins to do that in our life. That we would be people who really actually long to obey. Slow, that the, though that process may be for most of us. Then He goes on and says, how are we going to get attached to this, this new freedom that Jesus brings? Well, verse 39, the first part of it, what does He say? The only way you can have this freedom in your life is to believe. He says, you attach yourself to this by faith. He says, this is all about something that God has done for you. And you have nothing to offer Him. All you can do is receive this. This is a gift. Paul says it comes to us by belief, not our own effort. So he talks about this decisive freedom, and then he goes on and tells us about an unbreakable freedom. Look with me in verses 32 through 37, if you would that long prologue and leading up to this in Paul's sermon when he talks about what God had done for, for his people in Israel when he, or in uh, Egypt when he takes them out of slavery in Egypt. And when he sends them judges and eventually kings, eventually King David to rule over them as God continues to move towards his people time and time again. We see that God... And his un, this unbreakable freedom that he brings to us is rooted in an unfailing promise. That's why Paul goes through rehearsing the history of Israel. He says, our God is a God who makes promises to us and then makes good on those promises. Look with me in verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to their children by raising Jesus. He says, this promise that God has made to his people through the ages has now been fulfilled in Jesus. He says, God keeps his promises. And this freedom that he brings in the gospel is unbreakable because it is rooted in the very promise of God. And our God is a God who speaks truth and makes good on his word. But then he goes on, Paul goes on to say, not only is it rooted in unfailing promise, it's rooted in, in an incorruptible Savior. Look at verse 33 through 37. Why does Paul go into this? He he, he talks about King David and he goes to great lengths to say, you know David, our our king, years and years and years ago, what happened to David? He was faithful. He served God his his whole life. And then he was buried. He died. He was put in a tomb. And immediately what began to happen to him was that his body began to decay. 
Paul says this is the way we all go, isn't it? That we are corruptible. David was corruptible. But he says there is one who is not. He says this Jesus who was given for us did not stay in the tomb, but was raised again to new life. And for Paul, it is unbelievably central and important, not simply that Jesus died for us, but that he was raised for us. Because it says that this forgiveness we've been given is beyond threat. It's beyond diminishment. It's beyond tarnish. It's beyond corruption because we are tied to a Savior who is uncorrupted, who is alive, never to die again. Because we are joined to this Jesus, he says this promise, this freedom that he brings is unbreakable. My family at night with our kids will um, read a story from a, from a children's Bible. We have a Bible called the Storybook Bible. and One of the things I love about this particular one is wherever you turn, whether Old Testament or New Testament, it's very clear as it retells the stories of Scripture that everything points down one main theme that runs straight, straight through Scripture, the unfailing, unbreaking love of God towards his people. And time and again, story after story, here's the quote that comes up in this Bible. When it speaks of God's goodness to us, it says this. It speaks of God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And that's what comes to us in Jesus, the uncorrupted one. He is, in fact, the only thing in the universe that will not fall apart. And you know this because you know that if you live long enough, you stand to lose everything. Your wealth won't last. Your health won't last. Your relationships won't. Some of you in this room have outlived all of your friends. Nothing lasts. It all turns to dust. But Paul says, except for one thing, our Savior Jesus, incorruptible, and we are safe and free in Him because He went through death and came back to life that we might have life in Him. Okay, now here's the question. What do we do with that? Before we go on to our last point, what do we do with the decisive freedom and unbreakable freedom? And what does that look like when we try to really work it out in the middle of a week for us? Because, I mean, let's face it, many of us have been coming to church for a long, long time, and you've heard many, many times that Jesus loves you and forgives you of your sins. And it just passes right through, right? One more ho-hum. Uh, with the exception of, well, actually, with the exception of no one, nobody here went to my wedding, so I can tell the story. Shoot, that was the exception I thought about. Okay, other than Camper and Heather, none of y'all, more importantly, none of y'all gave me a wedding present. Now, I might really offend Camper and Heather here, but here's what, you, what we found when we got married, and maybe you found when you got married. Elizabeth and I, were, were, as we're opening our wedding presents after we get back from our honeymoon, and we come across uh, this box, and we unwrap it, and it is a crystal bowl. And I thought, in the first service, it said crystal ball. It was, this is very different. Crystal bowl. Uh, and I thought, how, well, how beautiful, how nice a crystal bowl. And so we go through two or three more presents, and then we get to another box, and it's, it's, it's lo and behold, it's another crystal bowl. And so by the end of this, we had four or five of these strewn at our, at our feet. I came to realize that crystal bowls are the wedding equivalent of fruitcakes at Christmas. Uh, 
because I'm sure that at least three of those had first shown up at somebody else's wedding. (laughs) And at least four of them later showed up at somebody else's wedding. (laughs) But for us, but for us, how often, honestly, when we hear this word spoken to us, that God has forgiven us of our sins in Jesus, is it one more crystal bowl that's just handed to us? Thanks. Thanks. Because we lose sight of how magnificent and glorious that it really is. How are we going to hold on to this better? Well, for me, sometimes it ends up being a day like I had this week where I woke up uh, irritable and grumpy, which is a fairly uh, common experience for me. And I, I wish that were not the case, but it is. And I, and I wish that were so easily solved as just a, a cup of coffee and, and get things going. It usually, it usually takes more than that. And, um, in a week when our family's been sick and I've been sick and we haven't slept well. and It's easy to think the source of my grumpiness is my lack of sleep. Or it's the fact that my, this week my kids just don't always want to do what I want them to do. Or fill in the blank for yourself. When you wake up, what is it that comes crowding in? Maybe it's your financial pressures and struggles. Maybe it is uh, your struggles at work. Maybe the first thing you see when you wake up in the morning is your spouse lying next to you and you think, that is the source of my trouble. Or maybe you wake up in the morning and there is no spouse next to you and you think, that is the source of all my troubles this week. What is it for you? And what do we do with that? Because we're people who so often think that my problem, my deepest, most significant problem, is something outside of me. But the gospel comes in and Paul reminds us that our deepest and most significant problem is something that is very much inside of us. The heart of my irritability and my grumpiness is not that the world has wronged me, but that there is something in me leaping out when my comfort is taken away, when my will is crossed, when the day just doesn't seem to go the way I want it to, when the universe gives evidence that somehow maybe it's not revolving around me. Right? The gospel tells us that at the heart of our deepest struggles is the sin that lurks in within us. And what do we do when we find that again? For me, it means sometimes I need to run away from everything for a little while and I need to begin to pray. Lord, you have to remind me that this is really true. That my biggest problem is not the situation around me, but the thing that runs straight through my heart. And Lord, you have said that you've taken away our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh, but mine feels like cold, dried up leather. You have to come in and warm it up again and knead it, make it supple once again. You have to show me that my deepest problem is my own ingrained selfishness, my own desire to be the center of the universe. What happens when we begin to pray prayers like that? We see again as we refocus our eyes again. Would it be that we would also see the goodness of the gospel held out for sinners like us? Because we have a Jesus who reaches down to the depths of that very need, that very cold heart, that very present struggle with the relationships around you, that very real and deep seated irritability. And maybe you think if I start to take my sins seriously like that, You have a whole host of cultural images in in your mind. You can sort of see the the New England dour, melancholic Puritan with sort of the big hat and the buckles on his shoes and 
down in the mouth. You know, if I really thought about my sin that much, wouldn't it make me an incredibly difficult person to be around? An incredible, incredibly depressing person to be around? Well, the truth is the gospel does exactly the opposite of that. Because just as Paul comes into us in this sermon and says, your deepest issue runs straight through the center of your heart, he also says, you have a Savior that meets you exactly there. You have a Savior that has come to make you free, even right there. Maybe if you can imagine this. Two men who are desperately thirsty, completely parched, out of strength. And one of those men is standing in a desert with no water for miles around. And he is going to despair. But you take that other man and you put him next to a water fountain. And what are you going to find? Incredible joy. The same thirst. But for one of them, here is the very thing that is going to meet him in his thirst. And even in that moment of great thirst, as he reaches over, bends down to take that first sip, the joy of the relief. What the Gospel says to us is that we are people who are incredibly thirsty and incredibly parched. But there is an unending fountain for us that meets us in the very depth of our need. An unbreakable and incorruptible freedom brought to us in Jesus. I'm struck by the very last line in this passage. As Paul leaves the city, some some have responded to the offer of the Gospel. Some have spurned him, some have persecuted him, but what does he say about those who have found Jesus in verse 52? The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. At least ten times in the book of Acts, this is stated as being the result of people coming into contact with Jesus. They are left with joy because they have come and found something that meets them in the very depths of their need. Now very quickly, just the last point. This freedom is decisive, it's unbreakable, but it's also imperative. Okay, you know, imperative in English language, it has two senses. One, imperative means incredibly important. And it is certainly that. What could be more important than this? This life, this healing, this hope that is offered to us, that comes and meets us at the very core of our need, That's what's brought to us in Jesus. Imperative. But second sense of imperative, you know, the grammar sense. It is a command. An imperative thrusts itself on us. It tells us something, commands something of us. That's the kind of imperative this is. Look at verse 40 with me. How does Paul finish his sermon? Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. What's Paul, how does he finish his sermon? Beware. You must listen to what I am saying. This gospel is being held out for you. Do not turn away from it. Do not scoff. Do not walk in the other direction. This is the message of hope from God for you in Jesus. Listen to it. This freedom comes to us as an imperative. Maybe as these things continue to sink in, and it is a lifetime for us. Maybe next Sunday when we gather together again and we begin to sing these hymns of the faith together, and we sing and read again their bracing words, 
Will we be one more step down the road of following Jesus and remembering that He, in fact, is enough? And that whatever else comes our way, there is something unshakable at the center of our life if we are attached to Jesus because we have an unbreakable, decisive freedom brought to us in Him that can never pass away, that can never perish, spoil, or fade, given to us in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would hold up the freedom of the gospel brightly for us this week. Would you remind us of the glory of what you've done for us in Jesus? And would you bring very real assurance to our hearts as we struggle this week to remember and to believe as we find ourselves midweek under a load of cares and concerns that we've begun to think define our existence, would we remember that we've been set free in Jesus? Would you then, in that, give us courage as people made for eternity, united to your Son, Jesus, would you give us courage to step back into the chaos of our lives and to follow you and to trust you at peace because you go before us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.